0: Support for LAist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at laist.com events. From Broadcast Center. This is Take Two. Me Martinez, San Francisco, Atlanta, Midtown Manhattan. Violence against Asians in the U.S. has been on the rise during the pandemic, but the roots of the hate goes back a long way to a time in our history when the country's railroad tracks were first being laid down in the dirt and through an era when we jumped into a worldwide war. We'll hear all about that history of hate ahead on Take Two. Stay with us.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. Mae Martinez, thanks for joining us today. Coming up.
2: When you think about when one Asian American ethnic group is targeted, it very much spills over.
1: The rise in incidents of violence against Asians in America and its origins right here in California. That's just ahead. But first... L.A. County remains in the orange tier as COVID-19 case counts remain low. Now, that is the good news across the state. According to Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Tracker, California's positivity rate is right around 1.5 percent versus some states in the Midwest, like Iowa, where it's closer to 20 percent. For more on why this is and what we need to do to keep it going, we turn now to Dr. Ann Remoyne, professor of epidemiology at UCLA. Doctor, uh, welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Now, after uh, such a terrible winter, California is again looking like a model state when it comes to the virus. So what are some of the reasons for that?
3: Well, you know, there there are a lot of different reasons for this that could be likely. It could be that the surge that we had during the uh, the, the the winter, uh, December and January. Uh, really did provide um, a, a lot of people with, with antibodies. It could be that we're doing well on vaccinations. We're getting a lot of vaccines into arms. And it could also be because we're doing well with masking and social distancing and all of those those measures that we took to really push down the spread of this virus. All of the closures, keeping people home, keeping people distant, made a difference. I think that all of these things have played a role in uh, in this really impressive Low rate of positivity that we have right now. Focus on right, right now. now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, as much as we want to maybe revel in in the success that the state has had, uh, yeah. If if uh, if we start to maybe drop our guard, <laughs> doctor, that might not be very successful in the future.
3: Correct. Correct. We have, you know, we 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 experienced what these surges look like um, and feel like we're watching it happen in michigan we're watching cases uptick across the united states right now 29 states right now experiencing increases in cases we're trending at about 70,000 cases a day nationally and we know an infection anywhere in particular right here in the united states could be an infection anywhere in the united states and things can ch- the tide can change very Quickly. We do know that this B117 variant, that is so contagious, much more contagious than the variant that the the California variant that we've had circulating here, um, can once it really gains momentum, it is very hard to stop. That's what we're seeing in Europe. That's what we're seeing in Michigan. That's what we're seeing in a lot of different states. And so while we are doing a really good job today, we do need to keep our guard up and to do everything we can to keep fighting against spread of this virus we're not completely out of the woods yet but the future is looking bright if we keep yeah. on this trajectory
1: and when we say don't drop our guard i, I don't think i think sometimes people get the sense of like, was that a mean lockdowns to go back no i don't think we mean that we just mean some common sense things that uh, we should be probably doing anyway
3: absolutely i think that you know that there's so many things that 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 we are um, that people are are thinking and feeling right now. And most of it is, is that they want to get back to life as, as it was, but we aren't out of this pandemic yet. And there is still a fair amount of virus circulating nationally and people travel all over the United States. Um, we don't live in a vacuum and you know, there, there is still risk. There's no zero risk scenario. And even if you are vaccinated, it's not a zero risk scenario, so it's important to remember that, and to be and to really think about what the risks are of what you're doing, and make decisions based on your own risk tolerance, and also what the vulnerabilities are in your in your household, in your community, um, and and the area around you.
1: You mentioned vaccinations yesterday. We discussed on the show the pause in the Johnson and Johnson vaccines. Do you expect it to create maybe a significant disruption in the vaccine rollout in California?
3: Well, it's not anticipated that it's going to create a significant uh, uh, problem in the vaccine rollout because the, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is only uh, accounting for a small percentage of the number of shots being delivered. I mean, it, there there is going to be a little bit of movement uh, reorganizing to get people uh, uh, vaccinated with another vaccine. But, but this, is, this is very, very minor in the grand scheme of things. We're doing very well in terms of getting vaccines in arms. We're going to continue to do so. There is uh, enough uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine that is going to be available that should be able to fill this gap. So I, I would not be concerned about the J&J vaccine, um, even with the pause, creating a problem. I think we're still going to be doing well in terms of vaccination.
1: And there's some people, I mean, I read, I read, uh, read the social media posts of some people being a little concerned over some of the reactions, uh, just, you know, the, the, the news that we got about the J&J shot, uh, the, the blood clotting. And I know that Governor Newsom was one of the people that got a J&J uh, vaccine. So should they be worried? Or should they be concerned, if at all?
3: Well, the first thing that everybody needs to re- remember is that it's not time to panic. This condition is extremely rare, and there has not been a definitive link to the vaccine at this point. Uh, it's it's important to remember that even if they do find a specific link, it is the chance is less than one in a million that this could potentially occur. So, you know, the chance of getting into a car accident every time you get into your car is significantly greater. And, and so very important to remember and and put into context that, um, you know, there, there, if, if there is a link that is causal, uh, it, it is very, very unlikely. And, uh, I think people need to just remember that the risk of COVID of a COVID infection, uh, or significant uh, uh, illness or death from COVID infection is a magnitude greater. And, and therefore, um, you know, we, we should not be too worried about it. We just need to make sure that, that we're aware of it. It's also a good point to remember that this is showing that our system is working, that our FDA and our CDC, our government takes uh, vaccine safety very seriously And for only six cases out of almost seven million shots of something that may or may not be linked, they're pausing, they're taking a look, and they're going to make determinations about what happens next. And it could be that there is no link and that everybody will be recommended to be, that this vaccine should be recommended for everybody. It could be that there are specific groups of people that have higher risk, either from medication that they're taking um, other risk factors, the um, uh, some sort of um, uh, uh, chronic uh, conditions that may need to consider other vaccines. I mean, there there are a myriad of of situations that are um, options that could happen once we really understand whether or not, these blood clots are actually associated with
4: vaccination.
1: Yeah, we don't know what we don't know, so that's why we try and figure it all out. We're talking to uh, Anne Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology at UCLA. All right, so things are, are going well right now in the state, uh, but uh, I, you know, I'm a half glass-half-empty kind of guy, so I'm wondering if there's anything that you're concerned about that could throw a wrench in things, anything at all you've been thinking about.
3: Well, I think it's the variants. Okay. We, we really do need to be keeping our eye on the variants. We need to be doing much better at sequencing, we've gotten better at it, but as I've said before, you know, right now with the amount of sequencing that we have ongoing, um, it's like shining a flashlight around in the dark and just capturing glimpses of what's out there. What we need to do is we need to turn the floodlights on and really understand what is circulating, what are we dealing with. If we really start seeing B one one seven taking over as the dominant variant here in California, we're going to have to really consider What we might need to do to pull back a bit and to make sure that we don't see a surge like we're seeing in Michigan, for example.
1: Yeah. Now, one of the things we have going for us, I think, is is the weather. I mean, summer's coming. It's going to be warm this weekend. Most of the time it is fairly pleasant to be outside in L.A. Uh, What have we learned about the benefits to outdoor activity when it comes to containing the spread of the virus?
3: Well, outdoor activities are significantly safer than indoor activities. This virus likes to spread from person to person and susceptible people when they are indoors in closed spaces, masks off. Those are all the things that we still want to avoid to keep uh, to keep the spread of this virus down, no matter what variant you're you're talking about here. So yeah, we've got great weather here in Los Angeles. Um, people can can be outdoors, and I think that that things that you can do outdoors are much safer than indoors. And if you're indoors, you wear a mask and you social distance from people that are not in your household. In particular, if they're not vaccinated, if everybody's vaccinated, you can reconsider your risk. That's a different situation.
1: One of the things, though, that has got me thinking. So, I, I, you know, baseball games around California, Major League Baseball games are allowing fans uh, back in. But there are parts of a stadium, even though technically you're outside when you're at Dodger Stadium or Angel Stadium, where to get to your seat, you need to be in enclosed space, indoor spaces in a lot of ways. So I think I'm worried that people might drop their guard there thinking, well, I'm outside generally. But you also got to remember the parts of the outside that are your inside in.
3: Well, exactly, and it's not just the food stands, but it's places like bathrooms. Yeah, uh, that's that uh, you need to be a little bit more careful in. You just have to remember what your risk is. That the virus is still spreading. That it is possible to get it. And when you are around large numbers of people that are not in your household, and you don't know what their risks are, you don't know if they're vaccinated or not. You don't know um, where what their uh, current status is. You have to be mindful.
1: Now, speaking of sports, Staples Center posted on Twitter that a health verification is going to be required for ticketed guests, uh, either proof of full vaccination or a negative COVID test. I know the San Francisco Giants are doing this as well. The Dodgers uh, so far are not. So it's a bit of a mix in California. Um, What's your take on these so-called vaccine passports? A good thing or inconsequential?
3: Well, you know, vaccine passports, as everything, are are complicated, and you you have to, you know, d- the proof that a person has been immunized against COVID nineteen can be very useful information. But the question is, how do you how do you get that information? How do you make sure that that information is valid? Who's issuing these passports? Uh, and and you know okay. whether or not they actually are going to be used in an effective screening method are are all important to to take into account
1: now internationally these seem to be favored uh, has this been you know during an approach during other outbreaks what's the evidence that maybe they help contain the spread while getting back life to, uh, getting life back to normal these vaccine passports
3: well the, the, these vaccine pass i mean the the, the most obvious uh, version of this is your who yellow card the the the, uh, the the yellow colored card that shows that you've had a small or a a, um, a yellow fever vaccination and and those cards have been used for several decades, um, to get entry into a country, you show your card that shows that you've had a yellow fever vaccine. And that, um, that's how we have been able to control yellow fever globally. And, and, you know, these are useful, but there's nothing that's foolproof here. I think that's number 1 mm-hmm. and number 2 you also have to remember that 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 not everywhere in the world has access to vaccines right now and so this can cause some serious issues in terms of equity and access and and create issues of discrimination as well that we all have to consider very carefully so there's a practical aspect of it and and the in principle aspect of it and then the in practice which I still I think needs to have a lot more study and organizing before we can actually really use vaccine passports
1: effectively. One more thing, doctor, and and I can speak on this with a good degree of authority. Um, Dudes are dumb guys are, are dumb. Now, let me read you some numbers. Only 30% <laughs> of L.A. County's men have gotten at least one dose of a vaccine, compared to 44% of women. 38 states that have published a gender breakdown of vaccine rates, and in, in, in all of them, all 38, more women have been vaccinated than men. Generally, around 60 versus 40%. Uh, for me, personally, it took a lot of heated phone conversations, FaceTime conversations to get my uncles to agree to uh, get a vaccine, and, and we ran a story a couple of days ago about how L.A.'s firefighters, a lot of the men, have been hesitant to get the vaccine. And then I saw that 40 percent of U.S. Marines have turned down the vaccine. That's around 48,000 Marines. So, doctor, what kind of messaging has been missing and, and what kind of messaging do you think will crack through this weird armor that some men are wearing when it comes to getting vaccinated?
3: Well, I think that this uh, this these statistics actually mirror what we see in terms of accessing healthcare in general. And even before the pandemic, women were visiting doctors more than men. Women were more likely to be responsible for, for family health decisions, and and are more likely to be taking advantage of preventative services such as cancer screenings, other things as well. And so, it's not. Completely surprising that you would see this reflected as well. Um, men tend to be less cautious than women, more prone to risk. These are general statements, but but <laughs> I, I do think that there are you know there are some studies that do that do demonstrate some of what what you're seeing. And I think that the messaging is so important. As you know, I've been um, working on a study here in Los Angeles looking yeah. at healthcare workers and first responders and vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, we, we do see differences in gender um, and and differences in ages as well. So these are things that mean, it just shows you that the message matters, who's yeah. delivering it, how it's delivered, and we all still need to do better at that. I can
1: already hear the and feel the torrent of tweets. Not all men are dumb. No, we're all dumb. That's Dr. Anne Ramoyne, professor of epidemiology at UCLA. Doctor, I'll, I'll distance you from all this. So thank you very much.
3: <laughs>
1: More you. take two coming up in 60 seconds.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: now with more take two on 89.3 kpcc and kpcc.org amy martinez in late january an 84 year old thai man was assaulted while walking in a san francisco neighborhood he died of his injuries then in mid march a gunman in atlanta shot and killed eight people in three different massage parlors six of whom were asian women a couple of weeks later a man attacked an elderly filipino woman in midtown manhattan group of doormen just watched but did not help. Violence against Asian people has been on the rise since COVID-19, but historians have pointed out that America's history of anti-Asian hate goes back to its early days and has much of its origins right here in California. For more on this, we go now to Renee Tajima-Pena, an Asian-American studies professor at UCLA. She also produced the PBS documentary series Asian Americans. And we also have with us Jane hong history professor at Occidental College. Now, Renee, I want to start with you. The the origins of this anti-Asian sentiment began to take root around the time of the gold rush in California when so much Chinese labor was being used to build railroads. Renee, what was going on at the time?
5: Well, you know to paint a bigger picture uh, connected to today. Today there's, you know, increasing diversity, but then also this polarization and divisiveness. Well, in the latter half of the 19th century, you had the same thing. All these new people were joining the body politic, new non-white people. And Chinese immigrants came to mine for gold in California. Many then um, worked on the railroads. You know, they serve the labor force of this growing American economy. In fact, the uh, transcontinental railroad, which joined the Pacific to the Atlantic, the whole Western leg was really built by Chinese immigrant labor. And I think like 90 percent.
1: Jane, when you think about what they were doing at the time, I mean, they were helping build this country up, make it to what it is today uh, in in terms of the economy. Why do you think all of those feelings of hate and discrimination were there?
2: I mean, you have Chinese workers kind of on the the western part of the Transcontinental Railroad. On the kind of eastern front of the railroad moving west, you have a lot of Irish workers and just a kind of multi-ethnic group of workers and so I think there are contests over wages, um, over jobs, and you also see the emergence of a number of kind of religious discourses, civilizational discourses that talk about Chinese as unable to assimilate, as heathen. There's a really popular poem called The Heathen Chinese which talks about kind of the craftiness of, of the Chinese and their threat and how they pose a threat to kind of American Christian civilization. So I think race, religion, labor issues, all become very much entangled in the anti-Chinese kind of rhetoric and discourse of this moment.
1: Renee, in your PBS series, Asian Americans, historian Connie Young-Yu characterized the 1870s for Chinese immigrants in this way.
5: In the 1870s was when the great anti-Chinese movement took place. And the rallying cry was the Chinese must go.
1: Post 1870, what was it like for Chinese people living in California as a result of this?
5: Well it wasn't very good. There was this uh, economic downturn in the United States. You know Chinese were there as laborers mostly and many of the uh, ra- railroad workers they moved on to new jobs elsewhere. so they were forming this kind of pool of labor competition with white workers and there was just an amazing amount of hostility, anger and violence directed towards the Chinese. I mean, even in, I think it was July of 1877, um, there was this Sandlot rally in San Francisco and 8,000 people they think might've been there. And that turned into three days of rioting uh, of these white mobs who attacked Chinese and attacked Chinatown.
1: Jane, a couple of laws resulted from this anti-Chinese sentiment in the late 1800s. What was behind the Page Act in 1875?
5: It
2: doesn't explicitly target Chinese women by name, um, but there's a clause in the law that effectively makes it really difficult uh, for Chinese women to enter the United States. And that clause talks about barring people who are being brought for, quote, lewd and immoral purposes and i think the target here was chinese women who were generally the assumption was they were being brought to the united states to to do sex work and so if they were admitted given entry that they would uh, they would contribute to the moral decay of american society and so under that law you know chinese women have a really difficult time entering and even women who want to come as part of kind of families right it, it, for the next decades. Um, It just makes it really difficult for women to enter. And this has a huge impact on the development of Chinese immigration and Chinese American society.
1: So Jane, so things like the Page Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act, how did these laws shape perceptions of Asians who'd come to America and, and the terms specifically that were used to describe them?
2: I mean, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act you know, it is very famously one of the only and the first immigration act in American history that specifically targets and excludes an ethnic or racial group by name. In fact, I don't think there is another um, that follows. I think ma- many Americans don't realize is that the Chinese Exclusion Act was just the beginning. The Page Law and Chinese Exclusion Act were just the beginning. And that over the next few decades, Congress expands exclusion to include or basically to exclude all Asians. So by 1924 you have nobody from Asia basically is able to enter the United States for long-term immigration. The one exception are Filipinos uh, because they are part of a U.S. colony. Um, So I think some of the terms that are created in the law are terms like Asiatic. Uh, The 1917 Immigration Act creates the Asiatic Bard Zone. And Asiatic encompasses a lot of the groups that we think about as Asian American today. So East Asian, Southeast Asian, South Asian. Um, The other phrase that I would probably highlight is Aliens ineligible to citizenship, uh, because the other really big piece of the story is the naturalization or citizenship piece. And so for most of American history, um, Asians are not able to naturalize as U.S. citizens because under law, only free white persons. And then after the Civil War, persons of African descent are able to naturalize as citizens. And so until 1952, Asian Americans are considered aliens ineligible to citizenship. And finally, the only exception to this is if you were born in the United States.
5: If I can add to that, you know, my grandfather first came to the US, to Hawaii in 1902 to um, cut cane sh- on the sugar cane plantation. He was here for 50 years before he could be naturalized as a citizen. So he kind of, you know, lived through this whole history. He, he went from Hawaii to San Francisco in 1906, April of 1906. As soon as he got off the boat, you know, this white mob came after him and yelled, "Like go home to China!" I guess they thought he was from China. He was from Japan by way of Hawaii. Um, you know, they threw rocks at him. He, as luck would have it, it was the day before the San Francisco earthquake. So, you know, the day before, because of that mob, he just fled to Los Angeles and he missed the earthquake. But he he was here, you know, paying taxes, raising a family. And for half a century, he could not become a citizen because of oh. those those laws. That's why to this day, when people say the term illegal alien, I mean, it really sticks in our craw.
1: Now, there's also this uh, pattern of scapegoating Asian communities during times of national crisis. Now, this is how historian Brian Nia described the scapegoating that led to Japanese incarceration during World War II from PBS's Asian Americans.
0: You had newspaper
1: columnists opportunistic politicians such as the uh, Attorney General of California, Earl Warren, who were really agitating for further action against Japanese-Americans. They wanted to remove every man, woman, and child from the West Coast. Jane, how did this play out for other uh, Asian communities in California?
2: So we know that Japanese Americans, 120,000, were incarcerated um, during the war. And that was for about three to four years, some for longer. During that time, you you have smaller populations of Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Filipino Americans, South Asians in places like California. I mean, you know, many of them faced violence. Um, So I've read of many stories um, of Korean immigrants living in Southern California, Central Valley, for example. Who were beaten up? Um, who were targeted? Their cars, right, were um, smashed. Um, you know, children were threatened. And you know, I've also read stories about you know Chinese Americans who felt so threatened that they would wear buttons, right, that said "I am Chinese." Some Koreans actually started wearing the Korean flag, like on their shirt, um, to try to distinguish themselves from Japanese. You know, I see a lot of parallels, I guess, with the present in terms of when you think about when one you know Asian American ethnic group is targeted. It meant it very much spills over um, into the treatment, yeah. the mistreatment, and violence against other Asian Americans. Because I think on the ground, I don't know how much people distinguish um, between uh, different Asian American groups.
1: They don't, Jade. I mean, that's the thing. If, you, if you're someone that's already going to do something like that to another human being, you don't care <laughs> at that point, right? I mean, that's you're just you just want to let your a- your rage, your anger, your hatred out.
2: Yeah that really that really is something that I'm thinking about lately and even with that recent case of the 65-year-old woman who was kicked and and beaten on the streets of New York City in Midtown Manhattan you know I was I was surprised but then in some ways not surprised that she actually was filipina american <laughs> she was a filipina american woman who's being targeted right now it's it's a really i think difficult time for asian americans generally and it's not you know it's not just the 1940s it's not just today the Vincent Chin case um, in 1982 He was a Chinese-American auto worker born in the United States who um, was beaten to death by two white men um, with baseball bats in a McDonald's parking lot, you know, a few weeks before his wedding. uh, Because there was a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment during that time, because, you know, I think folks in Detroit blamed the Japanese car industry um, for people losing jobs at places like Ford and GM. And so, again, right, I think this is one of the reasons why many folks, many Asian Americans believe there is value in solidarity, right, that, you know, we might be Korean American, Chinese American, Japanese American, South Asian American, but when it comes down to it, you know, on the streets, (laughs) you're Asian American, and we're all targets.
1: That's Jane Hong, professor, history professor at Occidental College. Also, Renee Tajima-Pena, Asian-American studies professor at UCLA and producer of the PBS documentary series Asian Americans. After the break, we're going to continue this conversation on California's anti-Asian history by hearing about a little-known shooting over 30 years ago in Stockton, California. That's coming up next when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: Back now with more, take two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Amy Martinez. We're going to continue our discussion on California's history of anti-Asian racism going back to its earliest days. Now we're going to delve into the parallels the past has with the anti-Asian violence occurring today. We're talking to Jane Hong, professor of history at Occidental College, and also Renee Tajima-Pena, UCLA professor and producer of the PBS documentary series Asian Americans. Now Renee starts starts us off by telling us about a shooting that many Americans have not heard of in Stockton, California. That was back in 1989.
5: The 1980s was really a whole decade of anti Asian violence. Another time there's this spike. And uh, in Massachusetts and Colorado, all over the country, there were these local tensions and conflicts and violence directed towards um, refugees. Then, of course, in the recession in the early 80s, as Jane talked about in the Vincent Chin case, I mean, people were taking baseball bats to Toyotas. And blaming the Japanese car imports on on the recessions. And eventually Ron Ebens, a white Chrysler worker, took a baseball bat to Vincent Chin's head and and skull and and killed him. But by the end of the decade, 1989, uh, there was this case with Patrick Purdy, who had white supremacist kinds of views. He came from Oregon and he went to Stockton, California. He went to the Cleveland School. In a neighborhood in Stockton, where a lot of Southeast Asian um, <clears throat> families lived, went to the schoolyard and shot up the schoolyard and killed, I think, five um, little kids, Southeast Asian kids. And it was—it was really. This was before Columbine. Um, most people don't know about that, but it was a mass shooting of children on a schoolyard, and and it really shook our consciousness. But, you know, unfortunately, I I think that's something that's really been forgotten.
1: Jane, I wanted to ask about the violence in Atlanta and how that, that shooting, how it relates to the history of violence against Asian American women or Asian women.
2: You know, we talked about the Page Law earlier and how it specifically racialized Chinese women as as prostitutes. I think there's also a, a, you know, a history that continues in the 20th century uh, with US interventions, Cold Wars, empire building um, in Asia. Um, I'm a diplomatic historian by training. And one of the things historians who study US Asia foreign policy and military interventions often talk about is just kind of how US military o- officials talked about Chinese communist lives or North Korean communist lives, Vietnamese lives, as somewhat more expendable. And there are any number of documents and quotes and memos that attest to that. That idea that Asians really don't—they don't value their own lives that much—and um, so you know, by by extension, Americans don't have to value Asian lives that much. And so that's one piece of the story. And the second that's related is just the hypersexualization of Asian women, and that that story again it is tied to the Page Law. But during the Cold War, in particular, you see the emergence of camp towns, red light districts, and all these Asian women being um, brought into sex work um, to service kind of USGIs and other uh, Western troops who are setting up camp at military bases that are now stationed throughout um, Asia. I'm thinking here about places like South Korea, Okinawa, the Philippines, but I mean, there are many other places as well. You see these themes kind of come together in Atlanta because first the idea, right, the questions about the six Asian American women who were killed, who were they, what was their relationship to sex work, Um, the ways in which the shooter was talked about, um, and the ways in which, you know, initially many people tried to downplay the racial dimensions as if they didn't matter. And kind of in many ways, disregarding the humanity of, of the women he actually killed.
1: And Renee, hearing Jane right there, I mean, you could really hear that through line starting from 1840 all the way through Atlanta last month.
5: Yeah, I mean one way of looking at Asian American history is there are these fault lines that erupt Particularly during times of national crises, you know Now we're in another time of national crises with the pandemic and this whole reckoning About systemic racism. I I would add about the atlanta shootings, you know, which happened march 16th A year to the day after donald trump's first chinese virus tweet a year to the day and so when the news broke of these killings of six Asian women targeting three Asian businesses, after this year of you know fear and grief, it was really this culmination. I think people wept, really wept in our community when they heard that. But then the next morning, the tears really turned to rage when the Cherokee County Sheriff spokesman had his press briefing and said, oh, we think it's sex addiction. The the killer said it has nothing to do with race. And Asian Americans knew our history, knew our truth, knew about the Page Act in 1875. The Page Act, where not only were Asian women seen as being hypersexual, uh, you know, prostitutes, but also bearers of disease. At that time, the American Medical Association Issued a statement that there are these diseases the chinese bring they're immune But these women will infect white men who will die from the diseases So this whole, you know, these tropes and these perceptions of asian people um, It's so important to look at that history in in the same way that the 1619 project of the new york times looked at the origins of slavery um, to talk about how that trajectory uh, still shapes the lives of African Americans. If you look at our origin story, you can see where systemic racism, <clears throat> and you can see where these perceptions uh, were really solidified. You know, at the Atlanta shootings, you know, there was just this kind of perfect storm of all these ideas of us being the other, carriers of disease. You know, the expendables.
1: One more question for both of you. What, what are the lessons that we can learn from our past to help actually improve things today so that we're not repeating this same pattern of hate? Jane, you first.
2: I mean, for Asian Americans and I think for people of color in this country there's value in coming together because I think the things that oppress us kind of the systemic racism, the white supremacy right this is a common threat And so I think one of the things I have seen that that has been very encouraging is is I think there has been solidarity across racial lines and particularly from the black community I've seen a lot of um, solidarity and so I've been very heartened by that as a historian of course I have to say right the value of knowing our own history because I think part of understanding where, And this goes for all Americans, right? Um, Even if you're not a person of color, however you want to define yourself, you know, understanding where we fit into the longer history of, you know, the history of this country, I think is really important to understand like how our, our ideas about race and gender, right? How these things have been shaped over time and even how we understand politics, right? I don't think we can really understand what's happening in our world without at
5: least having a basic grasp of kind of how we've gotten here.
1: Renee, what about you? What, uh, what lessons can be learned from our past on this?
5: Well, I think one thing we haven't really talked about is through this whole time is the resilience and resistance of Asian Americans. So we started talking about the Chinese railroad workers in the the mid 1800s. Well, in 1867, the single biggest labor strike in all of the United States was mounted by Chinese immigrant railroad workers. So you see throughout the history, as soon as immigrant groups would come, like Korean immigrants in the 1902 or early 1900s, they started forming these community organizations, mutual aid organizations. Um, Asian Americans have fought, you know, at the ballot box, in the courts when they didn't have political power, on the streets, in the fields, on campuses, you know, in the culture. You know, that's what you're seeing now. I mean, that's what you saw that day after the Atlanta shootings. Asian Americans standing up and say, no, this is our history. this is what we know, this is our truth. And then really working, really working to change the narrative, um, to you know talk to people in the newsrooms, to talk to people and you know bring it to the public conversation, um, to rally, to rally in solidarity and to str- try to you know change laws. So that history of pushing back, standing up and fighting, is, I think that's the most important lesson and, you know, just using our voice.
1: That's Renee Tajima-Pena, Asian American Studies professor at UCLA and producer of the PBS documentary series, Asian Americans. Also with us, Jane Hong, history professor at Occidental College. Renee, Jane, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, if you like going to movies in Hollywood, specifically the Cinerama Dome, then, you know, we all got some pretty tough news this week. But we're going to try and figure out if uh, what we heard this week is the end of a landmark icon in LA or if it's just a pause. We'll find out when Take Two continues. Stay with us.
0: VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org.
1: Back now with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and where you podcast. your podcast, Sammy Martinez. Will Smith has pulled production of his latest movie from Georgia due to restrictive voting laws in the state. Plus, Arclight Cinemas and Pacific Theaters will be closing their doors due to pandemic losses. But can they be saved? For more on this, let's go on the lot.
0: Pick your head out and yell. you want a chocolate? All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up.
1: Joining us, as always, is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, welcome back. All right. We start today in Georgia, where the first uh, major Hollywood production has decided to leave the state because of a new uh, controversial voting law. Uh, Star Will Smith and director Antoine Fuqua uh, will no longer be shooting their upcoming drama called Emancipation. There, Rebecca, fill us in on the specifics behind this decision. It's a big one.
4: Right. Now, this is the voting law that curtails the use of drop boxes. It enacts some strict new ID requirements for absentee ballots, makes giving water and food to those waiting in line of crime. It's been heavily criticized for being overly restrictive in a way that would particularly impact Georgia's black voters. Uh, what Will Smith and Antoine Foucault were, were planning to make was a true life period slave drama about a man who emancipated himself from a southern plantation and joined the Union Army. They said in a joint statement this week, quote, we cannot in good conscience provide economic support to a government that enacts regressive voting laws that are designed to restrict voter access. The New Georgia voting laws are reminiscent of voting impediments that were passed at the end of Reconstruction to prevent many Americans from voting. Regrettably, we feel compelled to move our film production work from Georgia to another state.
1: And that's, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they, they had to think hard on this decision, right? Because knowing that you're pulling a production out of Georgia means that at least a few black Americans are not going to have a work in Georgia, at least on that production, because it's, you know, it's, it's being shot there and everything. And, and major corporations and executives uh, also release a signed statement opposing uh, voting restrictions, including uh, companies such as Amazon, Netflix, Google, Viacom, CBS, many more. Uh, Rebecca, what's going to come of this? I mean, what has uh, Hollywood's been overall reaction to uh, Georgia's voting laws?
4: Well, it's interesting. Um, If you look at that letter, which also the agencies UTA and CAA also signed, it doesn't suggest a boycott. I think Hollywood is a little bit um, divided about the Mm. best way to respond here. That's partly because Stacey Abrams, who, by the way, is a client of UTAs, has asked folks not to boycott the state, but rather to, quote, stay and fight. And she's been, for many Democrats in Hollywood, the voice of authority on voting rights in general, and on Georgia in particular. There are a lot of big productions in Georgia. Warner Brothers is shooting Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam movie there. Disney's planning to shoot Black Panther 2 there. And the only black-owned studio in Hollywood, Tyler Perry's, is based there. Perry, like Adams, has cautioned that a boycott would hurt the wrong people um, and and potentially do little to sway the Republican lawmakers who passed the bill.
1: So there is that kind of that double edged sword there, right? Because if if there's a protest on productions in Georgia, it's because people think that there's an injustice that needs to be boycotted. But at the same time, you're hurting a lot of people who 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 need this work, who need uh, the money coming in, especially, you know, we're not clear of the pandemic quite yet.
4: Right. And if you look at the demographics of who's working on these productions, they are likely not the people who backed these new uh, measures. And, you know, one thing that Stacey Abrams has said is that this would be uh, devastating to the economy of Georgia and to people that presumably you most want to help.
1: We're talking to Rebecca Keegan of The Hollywood Reporter. All right, Rebecca, moving on to some sad news for moviegoers uh, in Los Angeles. Artlight Cinemas and Pacific Theaters announced they're going to be closing their doors for good. And that includes the Cinerama Dome in Hollywood. Uh, what have the theaters said about their decision to uh, stop operations?
4: Not a lot. I mean, They, they issued a statement that said, Uh, Quote, this was not the outcome anyone wanted, but despite a huge effort that exhausted all potential options, the company does not have a viable way forward. Now, we've been saying since last March that some movie theater companies are not going to make it through this pandemic. There's some people holding out hope that this announcement was premature, and maybe they'll find a way to reopen, but uh, it's not looking good right now.
1: Becca, I got a long history with the Arclight in Hollywood, specifically the Cinerama Dome. So in 1980, I was getting to know my stepdad, and he asked me, he wanted to have an evening out, uh, just me and him, just, just us guys going out. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, either a Dodger game or take me to the Cinerama Dome. He hates crowds, so he chose the smaller crowd of the two. Mm-hmm. So we w- went to see Raise the T- Titanic. That was that's an old movie. Uh, Alex Guinness, uh, Jason Robards was in it about raising the Titanic from the Atlantic's floor, uh, from the from the bottom of the. And yeah, it was not a great movie, but. But aside but from the significant point significant moment yeah big moment for me and him and also 1995 that was the first uh, movie date that I went on with uh, my well we've been together now this Saturday 26 years we saw Desperado oh. Antonio Banderas awesome. and Salma Hayek at the Cinema Dome I mean that that and I'm I'm not alone I'm sure there are thousands of thousands of people that have similar uh, you know connection to the dome.
4: For sure. I mean, certainly, you know, since this news broke, a lot of filmmakers like Ryan Johnson, Edgar Wright, John Chu have all spoken up about their experiences at the Arclight. Um, and, it, you know, the theater was known by both filmmakers and film goers for quality. They use real human projectionists, not computers, Uh they have these you know, very friendly, knowledgeable staffers whose name tags have the names of their favorite films on them. Um, and, and the Cinerama Dome itself is a historic landmark. It's significant architecturally. It's, it's just, a, you know, an iconic L.A. location, particularly meaningful to film world folks.
1: How do you feel about this, Rebecca, if it's indeed closed for good?
4: All you need to know about me is that part of the reason I chose my current apartment was that I could walk to the ArcLight. And by the way, I moved in March fourteenth, twenty twenty, and man. therefore have never been able to go since I moved here. I love that theater. I will. I, really hoping that it gets um, some uh, Night in Shining Armor swoops in and saves it.
1: That smoothie place that's right there in the complex. Mm-hmm. Oh. Those those are my those are the only smoothies I can I can drink. That that's There's it. a lot
4: of fun to be had there. Yeah. Yes.
1: One yeah. other, if you'll indulge me, Rebecca. One other story. So there was a this was when I was traveling with the Dodgers. Uh, there was an early Dodger game, a one o'clock Dodger game at Dodger Stadium on a Saturday, right? So uh, that a very rare night during the baseball season that I had free. So my wife and I run down after I come home from Dodger Stadium to to go catch a movie. Uh, at, you know, at at the ArcLight, at the Dome there, and this very very big. Big Hollywood director had been at the Dodger game, recognized me, and said, "Hey, you're the Dodger Stadium guy, aren't you?" I I almost I almost fainted. I almost wait. You're,
4: are you going to tell us this and not tell us who that was? I
1: cannot because I you
4: know. Oh oh man.
1: I know. You can you can imagine he has uh, very L.A. connected ties. How was
4: it Tarantino? That?
1: Maybe. <laughs> Maybe.
4: <laughs> well, he is there a lot.
1: So. Yes, he is. He is there yeah. quite a bit. Um, yes. All right, What? real quick, one more thing. Uh, Paramount has decided to delay the Top Gun sequel release date, this time from summer to uh, November. So what's the reasoning behind the move?
4: Well, interestingly, you know, Tom Cruise usually does these big global press tours for these movies. And it's looking like with the the pace of the vaccine rollout in parts of the world, particularly Europe, it's going to be hard to do that type of a campaign this summer. So this wasn't so much uh, about people getting to see the movie, but but also about promoting the movie and being able to do that kind of global, you know, uh, wind up that that Tom Cruise likes. There are a lot of other big movies coming, however, in the summer, Fast and Furious, Black Widow. So theaters don't seem to be taking the news of that shift too hard.
1: Rebecca, I have not been recognized very much in my radio career because it's radio, Mm -hmm. and so no one kind of connects the face with the voice. But when that happened that night, I was insufferable for the rest of the weekend. You, <laughs> my, my wife probably oh, I can wouldn't. Picture it. Yeah, no, I, I was. I was. Yeah, I was a pain to be around because I kept bringing it up over and over again. That's Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for the Hollywood Reporter. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us. Talk to you next week. Thanks, A. I'd come home from Dodger games, (laughs) and I would say to my wife, I wonder if so-and-so director went to today's Dodger game. I wonder if we'll run into each other, my friend so-and-so. Yeah. I can be that way when something cool happens. Can't help it. Can't help it. Alright, uh, if uh, you missed any part of Take 2, just go to wherever you get your podcasts there. We will be waiting to be heard by you. You can also find us on Twitter. We're uh, at uh, Take 2, at Take 2. I'm there as well at AmartinezLA. That's at AmartinezLA, and that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take 2 is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next. And Take